Hello, hello, hello. Thank you all for tuning in to The Rundown here on WNYU 89.1 FM, New York, and online everywhere at WNYU.org. I'm your host, Arya Young. Happy August, everybody. Uh, I hope everyone's having a great summer, especially in this heat wave. I'm personally not loving it, but uh, stay hydrated, stay cool, stay safe. Uh, also, long time no see. I, you know, I realize that things are a bit slow here in the station in the summer um, as compared to when school was in sessions. But I have had a very productive week uh, in terms of my responsibilities for the rundown. So today you will hear two stories. First, you will hear about the end of BIPOC Mental Health Awareness Month and why that's important. And then you will hear from a former Starbucks employee who's been fired recently as a result of Starbucks uh, union busting tactics that they've been employing lately. Both stories are brought to you by me. So without further ado, let's get into it. This past month of July was BIPOC Mental Health Awareness Month. If you didn't know what that was, but Indigenous and people of color are more likely to develop mental health conditions due to the racism that we experience in everyday lives and also the racial traumas that many of us uh, experience as well. So I talked to Dr. Dr. Lena Clark from Miracle Mind Global about it. I think it's so important that individuals understand that they need to reach out if they need help. Whether you wake up and you're depressed, a lot of people are going through depression, having suicidal ideations because of what we're going through today. July is the Black, Indigenous, and People of Color Mental Health Awareness Month. It was first recognized in 2008 to bring awareness to the unique mental health struggles that BIPOC groups face in the U.S., Dr. Lena G. Clark is a mental health coach and the CEO and founder of Miracle Mind Global, a mental health service agency. She says that very often people of color refrain from asking for help due to stigma. When it comes to people of color, I basically have um, noticed that, you know, with the racial disparities or the unfair differences that they face when it comes to mental health, a lot of them don't have the access to assistance or to help. Because of the taboo within the people of color community, they've been told to hide it, to sweep it under the rug. You're strong, you can handle it, especially within certain, you know, family members, household. So what that does is it it goes from generation to generation. According to nonprofit organization Mental Health America, BIPOC youth with behavioral and mental health conditions are more likely to end up in the juvenile justice system compared to white youth. Black Americans also experience misdiagnosis of schizophrenia due to racial biases. Clinicians tend to overemphasize the patient's psychotic symptoms and overlook symptoms of major depression. Black men particularly are four times more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia than their white male counterparts. Dr. Clark notes that men of color often face challenges communicating about their mental health and that the issue is personal to her. Uh, Losing my husband to suicide. 13 years ago, and, and writing a book titled An Amazing Mind. And it does not, again, discriminate. It doesn't matter. You know, he was an entrepreneur. He had his master's degree. But as we know, a lot of men, and I want to put this out there too, that our men don't talk. We need platforms so they can come together. We have men who are leaders who were created to lead households, you know, fathers. What they do is they mask because they don't want people to know 
They've been told to stay strong. You're not supposed to cry, but you're human. You are still human. I see a lot of arrogance when it comes to the men of color. And I'm like, why, why, why is it that way? I've had people ask me because like you mentioned, they have to feel validated. So that arrogance makes them feel important. But they don't realize that it also turns people away because you don't have to have that disposition in order to feel important because you are already important. If you don't know what has taken place in your family, ask questions. The violence is escalating because our young men of color don't know who they really are. Has anyone taken the time to talk to them, our leaders? Have you taken the time to take these young men of color by the hand and say, okay, what's really going on? We can't always put the blame on these men of color, the younger generation. They haven't had anyone to talk to them. They haven't had anyone to feel like they care. That's why a lot of them are out there in the street doing what they're doing because they feel accepted by whatever they're a part of, whether it's a gang, whether it's an organization, but it results to violence. A lot of them are very smart, but we have a tendency to say, oh, well, they need to be locked up. They need to be held accountable. Of course, we all need to be held accountable, including the leaders. I see that happening so much, you know, within um, the people of color, the young men of color. Um, They're just literally lost. July is over. But Dr. Clark and her organization will continue to provide mental health resources for Black, Indigenous people of color. She urges each BIPOC individual to practice self-care and reach out when help is needed. For the rundown on WNYU 89.1 FM, I'm Aria Young. All right, that was me. You just heard from me, and now you're still hearing from me. Uh So that was Dr. Clark and the BIPOC Mental Health Awareness Month. I hope that you learned something from that little story. And I definitely learned a lot from having a conversation with Dr. Clark. She's an incredibly intelligent woman. Um, And yeah, and mental health is definitely something that we should continue to care about even after um, the Awareness Month, for sure. So before I start my next story, um, I'm just inserting this little uh, thing that happened yesterday. So yesterday, we um, students and faculty at, at NYU received an email from our president, um, Andrew Hamilton, announcing the resignation of a uh, board of trustee member, Michael Steinhardt. So if you don't know about him, he is a hedge fund billionaire uh, who's been on the board of trustees for many, many years at NYU. And I think it was last year he was ordered by, let me see, he was, or, okay, he was ordered by the Manhattan District Attorney to surrender uh, stolen antiquities. So he collected antiquities and many of them if not all of them, were uh, stolen. And the stolen antiquities were worth $70 million. So he was ordered, I think, in December last year by the Manhattan District Attorney to surrender all these. And, oh, by the way, also, uh, our uh, school, a school at NYU, the Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development, is named after him. So he is a very important figure at the NYU community and for someone 
um, that powerful and important to uh, to kind of um, do something like that and be and that being in the news. Um, it's it's shameful to say the least. But yeah, so yesterday he resigned, or Andrew Hamilton announced that he resigned, and also I think it was. Also last year, when we heard about the stolen antiquities, the Steinhardt student government signed a statement calling for the school to be renamed because right now it's named after him. And we definitely don't want someone like that to represent the school. And um, I've always kind of missed the point of schools or places being named after people. I think it's kind of the same idea as Monuments. I think we have a lot of monument. This this concept of of monuments in our society and our culture. If something's important, then we kind of have to capture it, name things after it, you know, like symbolize it and everything. And I've always found that just a little controversial. I think because nobody deserves to be put on the pedestal, and definitely not Michael Steinhardt. Um, but if we were to name. You know, school after somebody, I would definitely think that it, it has to be someone who's who's an actual leader that's you know inspiring and that 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 represents NYU's values. And Michael Steinhardt is definitely not a person like that. In fact, he goes against many values that NYU promotes. So, so yeah, that was a little story. Um, if you want to read more about it. You can find the story on Washington Square News if you would like to know more information or more details about this story. So uh, next, I have a story for you about Starbucks. It's the summer right now. Uh, it's super hot. I go to Starbucks sometimes. You know, they, they have great ice drinks. And however, <laughs> uh, Starbucks, Starbucks employees have been unionizing um, all across the country and Starbucks uh, in response to that to that has employed a bunch of union busting tactics against their employees and one of the employees whom I talked to Jocelyn um, she's been recently fired by Starbucks and she thinks that it was targeted towards her because she was a union leader and firing her was kind of um a tactic to discourage employees from unionizing. So let's hear about that story. Starbucks employees have been unionizing all across the nation. Many employees have complained that in response to their effort, Starbucks has used aggressive union-busting tactics against them. Jocelyn Trukiyanki was a 28-year-old union leader at a Starbucks coffee shop in Long Island until she was recently fired. Jocelyn believes that Starbucks fired her in order to discourage employees from unionizing. Yeah, there was a lot of like different the way like she would treat others as the way I was being treated that didn't really add up. It, it seemed pretty retaliatory or like discriminatory. Jocelyn had been employed at Starbucks for seven years. Before being fired last Wednesday, July 27th, she was a shift supervisor at the Starbucks location on Great Neck Road in Long Island. According to Jocelyn, the unionization at her store was a long time coming. During her years at Starbucks, she had encountered incidents where employees were told to continue working when they were injured. 
During the COVID shutdown, Starbucks employees served an overwhelming amount of customers every day at the drive-through locations. Some of them even had to work sick. I didn't get COVID until this year, and I made sure to call out and that I wasn't going to come in and infect others. Though they did, like at one point on the fifth day, where I was still not feeling great, but I was a lot better than I had been. I said, "Hey, I'm still sick. I know it's like the five-day quarantine, but I'm I'm still sick, and I don't I don't feel that great." And my manager had said, "Okay." And then my district manager had called me later and was like, oh, I don't want you to lose. I don't want you to use your sick time without it being important. Come into work. You should come into work. And I was like, OK, I, like I and I guess like at that time I was like in a vulnerable state, like mentally, because I was just like, oh, my God, what if I really am not sick? And I'm just taking this too far. But my family was just like, you're still kind of sick. And I went in because I just like felt like I had to. I felt like I was convinced enough to go in. It really just hit harder during COVID because you're willing to risk our um, health and safety, our family's health and safety, and the customers who come in and you're like being greeted at the window by someone who could possibly have COVID. In December last year, a group of Starbucks workers in Buffalo, New York, became the first in the company to unionize. Many more stores followed nationwide. Jocelyn was inspired by their success and took the lead to unionize her store as well. We work, we sweat, to give us our respect. We work, we sweat, to give us our respect. But I had been wondering if they are so afraid of unions, what is a union? I realized that it was a way, a collaborative way to protect workers' rights, and it was kind of everything I wanted solidified. At first, many employees supported Jocelyn's idea. As the store petitioned to unionize, Starbucks used various union-busting tactics to dissuade employees from participating in the campaign. Our district manager and our manager would come in and they would like individually start talking to people and telling them how if we were to unionize, we would we would not be able to be promoted. We would not be able to transfer stores. You would be stuck in this store and you wouldn't be allowed to move in your positions. If if all the other stores in the area got a promotion, that we would not because our wages would be set by a contract and we would not be able to get any type of raise if it was given to every other store that was non-union that our healthcare, ASU, and all of those, we could gamble them away by becoming part of this union campaign. According to Jocelyn, Starbucks also used misinformation to discredit her and other union leaders to further bust the union. So they would just try to convince us that everything we have could be taken away and that I would be in charge of like, like me personally, like, oh, if you wanted to have your schedule changed, you would have to go through Jocelyn. And they just started vilifying me. And obviously, that's not something that is my responsibility. That would be my manager's responsibility. But they said that all of my manager's responsibilities would be taken away and that you would have to talk to a union representative in order to get even the slightest little thing changed, which is an obvious lie. Like they were saying that union organizers in Buffalo got paid. They didn't just wake up one day and decide to form a union, that they were getting paid up to like $11,000 to um, to form a union and then implied that I was I was receiving the same and all of that stuff was like discrediting and obviously like none of it was true and yeah and that 
really led to us like just losing our election a couple of months later, even though we had 100% of signatures signed in the beginning. As Strassland's unionizing effort continued, she says that the company targeted her by writing her up for minor infractions such as tardiness. To Jocelyn, this seems unfair, as the company is usually more forgiving and lenient with other employees who make similar mistakes. They started like just collecting these things and writing me up for them. And then towards the end, like the most recent one, they were citing instances where I was late for under five minutes. I think the most was five and one of the times was three minutes. The incident that got Jocelyn fired was when she had briefly lost a store key. On July 5th, Jocelyn discovered that her key was lost when she went to open the store in the morning. She immediately contacted her manager and retrieved a key from a neighboring store's manager to open the shop. The next day, Jocelyn used a spare key to open the store. That decision led to her being fired. Before this, there was a time where she had told me where she kept all the spare keys. On top of that, she also had put in flashlights for each of us. So this was not a place that was restricted for us to reach into because she told us exactly where it was. So I grabbed the spare key so I could open the store the next day. And the the day following, uh, she found my key next to her desk. I think it was either behind it or next to it. And she didn't tell me about it. I had to find out through another barista. And I said, hey, I heard you found my key. And she said, I didn't know your key was still lost. And, you know, three weeks later, I'm fired for that incident. But not for losing the key. It was for not telling her they were still lost. And that was the wording on the separation. It was for not telling her the keys remained lost. After being let go, Jocelyn is still passionate about workers' rights at Starbucks and hopes to continue contributing to the campaign. Meanwhile, customers are showing up to the store and using the phrase rehire Jocelyn as their name for the order. Jocelyn says that local community support is crucial to the success of unions. For WNYU 89.1 FM, I'm Aria Young. All right, so that's going to do it for us here tonight. If you liked what you heard or want to hear something different, you can email us at news at WNYU.org. I'll be back here next week, same time, same place, and I hope you'll join me. Coming up next is podcast Black Femme Kitchen. After that, you will hear my podcast again from me, What the New York with Ed and Ari at 8 p.m. I hope you enjoyed the show today. I'm Aria Young, and this has been The Rundown on WNYU 89.1 FM.